Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Labeling things is necessary for orderly thinking about complex subjects. Take, for instance, medical or psychological disease. We, we can't just talk in general about them. We have to have labels in order to identify specifically what it is we're trying to understand. Shortcut terminology is helpful except when it's not helpful. The problem with labeling is that it can be inaccurate, and that hinders the very clarity that the label was meant to provide. Labels can also diminish that which is being labeled, and that can be a good thing when a negative has grown too large in one's mind and needs to be shrunk back a little bit. Uh, for instance, I might say to a suffering person who's being overwhelmed with negative, undefined emotions, quote, well, if you can label it, name it, you can bring it out of the dark into the light and shrink its power. And that's true, and it's good. But when we label people with defining labels like, well, she's manic depressive, or he's gay, or they are left-wing radicals, then the labels are not good. Uh, when we label people, we diminish the person we have placed the label on. And then consciously or unconsciously, we deal with them and or they, they deal with themselves uh, as the label rather than as a person. We're not helping people when we label them. If we're going to help others or help ourselves, we must keep this foundational truth in focus. That is, that we're not merely the sum of our parts. We are not ruled by our parts. And some of our parts are truly just parts, but beyond our parts, there is the core expression of our true selves. Now, depending on what kind of damage a person has suffered and how they have or have not coped with that damage, they may be broken inside in such a way that the parts all need extra care and help in being reintegrated. But in such situations, we're talking about especially damaged people. There are, thankfully, wise therapies and and. and people trained to help those kinds of wound, wounded people. And there's more people who are wounded on that depth than there used to be, sadly. I want to be careful to acknowledge that this is a real need and that such woundedness can be healed with the right help, but I don't want to address that more here than what I've just done. I want to try to help us understand in a more general way how we can learn to live in the freedom God intends for us to live in in the normal daily routine struggles of life. For even if we don't have an especially damaged inner core, it's a real battle to live free uh, until we learn the truth. We have many dynamics that go into making us who and what we are, so we tend to label those different aspects in order to be able to understand them. We speak of our emotions, our personality traits, our faith, our heart, etc. 
The moment we do this, we shrink what we're talking about. There are exceptional times when rather than shrink what we're talking about, labeling may accidentally do the opposite. It might magnify the label rather than diminish it. In that case, we exalt too largely what we're talking about. For instance, we may say, it's just my personality to be fearful. Or, for instance, uh, I just get angry and you just have to live with my anger. That's just, that's just, you know, take it or leave it. Well, in cases like this, <clears throat> labeling has become an excuse for giving place to something that needs to be corrected or healed. But I think for the most part, when we're labeling, we don't make the thing labeled grow larger. We more than likely usually make it shrink. And all those labels and powers of, uh, that the labels are attached to, of all of them, the one that probably causes us the most confusion is whenever we speak of the function of the human will, my will. I may, I may be wrong, but I think when the subject of the will is brought up uh, in a sermon or in a message or even in counseling uh, or conversations, um, something in us gets a bit nervous or even resistant. Um, this is often a perfect setup for what we call passive-aggressive behavior. One part says, I don't feel up to discussing the will. It's too heavy. While the very same moment, another part in the same person can say, and you better not try to make me talk about it either. See, on one side, it's passive. On the other side, it's strong-willed pushback, which is aggressive. The subject of the will brings different responses to mind in different people. But for those who have been suffering from, say, an addiction or any debilitating repeated struggle like depression, they hear the reference to the will and they interpret it as a demand on them, whether that's how it was meant or not. They think the very word implies they they are being given a simplistic command by the helper or pastor or counselor or whoever to just, quote, stop it. Just grow up. Just change. Just choose. Just, well, you, you fill in the blank. Whether that's what is meant or whether we just hear anything about exerting our wills as an impossible and unsympathetic cold command we feel almost attacked by the use of the word if we are hurting or stuck in some bad place in life. Often people in this mindset feel themselves sinking back into a place of withdrawal and weakness that proves the point uh, in their own minds that talking about the will is not helpful for them. Now, some people really do sink into near total passivity in which they perceive themselves as truly being unable to push back. And in those cases, the source of that debilitating wound needs to be carefully and prayerfully examined and ministered to. There may even be some demonic bondage or family dynamics which need extra help 
for the person to be set free. Where there's a mixture, though, of passivity on one side and yet at the same moment, strong pushback against being told to snap out of it and grow up and use your will on the other side. Isn't it interesting that the very person who thinks they have no strength of will can become very willful and aggressively resistant to hearing anything they don't happen to be comfortable hearing. Pretty strong will in that situation, wouldn't you say? Then there's a totally opposite side to this problem of the will in some people. They may hear the word will and think, well, yes, I can. I will do everything that needs to be done with my sheer willpower. And of the two, weak self-doubt on the one side or ego-driven willpower on the other, the willpower side can get some limited and impressive results. Weak-willed, fearful withdrawal from a battle obviously doesn't bring much progress. But strong ego-driven self-will, of course, will make some progress, but in the long run, both sides will produce bad fruit. We've been discussing the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility we have to exercise our wills. What is God's part? What is ours? Some parts of the church have gone so far into the doctrine of sovereignty that they have completely negated the human will altogether. Now, thankfully, most people no longer go that far if they ever did. But many are in reaction against the extremist view of sovereignty. And they should be, for there is nothing more or less than determinism in that view of sovereignty, which makes God directly responsible for evil, and that is blasphemy. So, understandably, some have bounced to the other extreme, making statements about how even God can't go against the sovereign human will. God has made man's ability to choose sovereign, though they don't say it exactly that way, maybe. Even God himself has to obey the human will is the implication. As is nearly always true, the reality lies somewhere in between these two extremes. The idea that we learn about these things uh, and the concepts that we learn about these things will determine how we think and what we believe, and that will determine how we choose so we evidently are expected by God to hear and learn and discern and choose and act on what we believe to be true. In other words, God intends us to exercise our wills. So how is exercising our wills any different from ego-driven willpower that I've already talked about? This is one of those subjects that can become unnecessarily complicated if we're not careful. But at the same time, there are some aspects of this that trip people up. And we are going to try to untangle that as much as possible. The, the bottom line is God wants you to learn to will his will. 
He sovereignly rules over the process, and part of his sovereign rule is the protection of your power to choose with your own will. That leaves you a lot of room for foolish, wrong choices. I know all about that. He's given you his word and his spirit to help you in your learning effort. But if you are anything like me, you have misused that freedom uh, and made many wrong choices. But even that's not wasted. I had to learn many things the hard way, but I did learn them. David said in Psalm 119, I've been made wiser than my teachers because I've kept your word. In other words, it's wiser to learn what's right from instruction and trust than it is from painful personal experience. I have learned both ways. I love the wisdom and trust way a lot better. The other way is very painful. Either way works, but why purposefully choose the hard way? Well, because sometimes there are dynamics going on in us and around us that are not clear and we don't understand them and we're not in control of them and we don't even know they're happening maybe until they've made a a mess in us. And that's why another reason why we need grace. When we think of our will, we often think of the word willpower as the same thing. And they're not the same thing. Remember, we started this time together describing how putting labels on things defines them, but also shrinks them for good or for ill. So we often do this with the word will. Diagramming the human psyche is a needed thing when you're teaching on the subject of how human beings are made up. Watchman Nee wrote a great classic, which many of you probably know, called The Spiritual Man. And in it, he diagrams our humanity. Most of us have seen some form of that diagram. It looks like a bullseye. The outer circle is the body, and the inner circle is the soul, and the center circle is the spirit. Then the soul is also divided into three parts, the mind, the will, and the emotions. And that is helpful, except when it's not. Watchman Nee said of this teaching that it was perfect and that that's what was wrong with it, he said. He was wise enough to point out that all this diagramming and defining was far too exact to fit our true humanity. Willpower is the exerting of our own desire and energy towards a certain goal, and that has its place. But if our entire view of life and purpose is only seen as the fruit of our own exertion of willpower, we're living for ourselves and limited to our own resources, and such people get a lot done in their own power for a while. They often wound people in the process, and they burn out. But entire ministries are successfully run, if you want to use the word successful, successful in the eyes of man anyway. But at the core of all its success is this unclean human energy that has not been to the cross. 
the kind of, quote, freedom to choose that you see in this kind of situation is not free at all. It's driven. And here's where the human will, when left on its own, gets deceived. We're only free to a certain degree. Say that to yourself again. We are only free to a certain degree. The so-called self-made man whose drive to win at all costs may have seemed to serve himself well. He's achieved tremendous gains, but he's like the man in Jesus' parable who built barns and tore them down to build bigger barns because he was getting richer and richer because he was so successful. Then suddenly his life is ended by unexpected death, and Jesus calls this man a fool. And Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. The driven will is not a free will. It is driven. Well, who's driving it? A driven person is a puppet driven by the devil. God is not looking for a wet noodle wimp who's unable because he is unwilling to press forward. But God is also not looking for a self-made egotist who thinks he can live without God's grace. God is forming us into what the New Testament calls sons. Now this, of course, speaks to women also. It's a spiritual position, ladies, not a gender reference. And uh, sons and daughters of God, mature sons and daughters, hate what God hates and uh, love what God loves and gives ourselves to what matters to God. And we can do that, be that, be sons and daughters, only as we learn by going through the process necessary that helps us practice choosing against our will for his will, which is a proper use of our free will. For a driven will is a slave and is often then a slave driver of others who must serve his or her bidding. Such a person is not free at all. They're in bondage to their definition of life or work or whatever. Their seemingly strong will is really an enslaved will that also enslaves all those around it that it can. This will has to be brought to a place of brokenness. Once broken, God can receive the offering of that person's broken will at the cross. At that moment, their, their choice of yielding to God is their first real act of a free will. This is not necessarily an initial salvation encounter, by the way. There are many who have given their lives to Jesus the best they knew, but who have never allowed their wills to be brought through this process. In cases like this one, defining the will as being just a part of the person is deceiving. I've heard people say, I am as compassionate and caring as anyone, but my willpower tends to push through to get what I want uh, accomplished. They may mean by this that it's okay 
to care and be kind unless it gets in the way of getting your goal met. Then it's okay to just run over people. But splitting the parts off from each other, the person can claim to have a good heart but justify overbearing insensitivity by blaming that part of him which he calls his will. Then there are those who are seemingly weak in their wills. They're not arrogant, pushy people. They may even be addicts or emotional codependents or depressives or whatever. They will say things like, God knows my heart. I just can't seem to do what I need to to get free. In this statement, God knows my heart, that suggests that the heart is loving Jesus, but the behavior is separate from the heart. And culturally, our language has evolved to support the idea that the heart is an emotional, feeling, separate part of us from the will. I can love God with all my heart, folks say, while doing the most unloving things we can imagine. But God knows my heart, though. But in both cases, whether it's the self-made man bully or the weak, whining, addictive personality, the mistake is in defining the will as a separate part of the person or the heart as a separate part of the person. But in the scriptures, the heart and the will and the person are all the same thing. The core of who we really are is manifested from our heart and demonstrated by what we do, which is our will. What I do is who I am. What I choose is who I am. God does know my heart. It is manifested clearly by what I actually end up doing. Jesus told a parable about two sons whose father directed them to go into the field and work. This is not a parable about keeping rules to satisfy a demanding father or so-called works salvation. No, this is a parable about the loving father's awareness that reality is only demonstrated in what we ultimately choose to do not in empty, shallow, sentimental words with no supporting action. There are many scriptures that affirm this. I mean, here's just a few. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. People who hear and don't do are self-deceived. That's what I see in most of Christian America, in churches Thankfully, that's changing, I believe. But for for many years, that's what we were. Hearers without being doers. And we, we would hear every week a sermon, a sermon, a sermon. And the more we heard and didn't do, the more self-deceived we became until we end up with the impotent Christian system of America that most of us have grown up in. Uh, then James chapter 1, verse 25 goes on to say, but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty will be blessed in everything he does. Notice, 
James uses the, the phrase, the perfect law of liberty. We're only liberated when we are obeying the liberator. Everything else is not liberation, it's slavery. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse, 60, verse 46 and following, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? Whoever comes to me and hears me and does what I say is like a man who builds his house and he digs deep and lays the foundation on a rock. I, I, I love this phrase, he digs deep. This, this the obvious motive in this parable is that you have to get to the bottom of what's really going on in you and most people don't do that. Most people stay in the shallows because it it's safer, it's familiar, it's self-deceiving and uh, manageable. Anyway, he goes on to say, when the floods arose and beat strongly on that house, and by the way, he, he says that as if it's inevitable that the floods are going to come and they are going to beat strongly on your house. That's going to happen. That's what life's about. I mean, that's what life life has. It's not what life's about necessarily, but it is an unavoidable reality of life. You're going to get pummeled by the flood of living. But he says the person who has built the house on a deeply deep a deep dug foundation can't be shaken because it's founded on a rock, an immovable, solid rock. But the one that hears and does not do, does not do, does not do, is like a person with no foundation who builds upon the earth. The earth, James says, the earth is that which is carnal, sensual, demonic. And the flood came and beat strongly on the house, and immediately the house fell, and was the great was the fall of it. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 17, if you will do what I say, then you will know. We want the other way around. We want to know, and then if it suits our idea of what we want things to be like, we will obey maybe. Jesus says, no, if you want to understand Obey me first. Our will is our true self. Your will is you. What you end up choosing to do is your will because that is what you did. There's a wonderful illustration of this in the screw tape letters, uh, which we, we won't take the time to turn to because I'm always telling you to read the screw tape letters for yourself. And if you'll read them, you'll see that screw tape talks about uh, how our desire, he's speaking of, a, of the devil, uh, as what, what the devil would, would want to do with the people. Our desire is to get people to push everything they believe out into their emotions and feelings, never to the center, which is their will. Cause them to believe in lots of things in a distant, uninformed, unconnected, disembodied way. But don't let them ever 
see that believing something is obeying it. Anyway, the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions is sadly true. The saddest words we might ever say is, too late, I waited too late. What I get up and do is what I really believe and what I really am and what I really want. Jesus illustrated this clearly in different ways. We all maybe wince a bit when we remember Jesus' parable about the two sons whose father told them to go work in the fields. Uh, and the, the, the one son smiles and says, Certainly, Father, and yet never went. And the other grumbled, but went up, uh, ended up going. Jesus asked which one did his father's will. Well, no mystery. The one who got up and did what he was told, even though he did it grumbling. The one who chose and acted on what his father said is the one who did his father's will. Now, now hold on. Hold on, hold on. I can hear some of you screeching. <laughs> this is exactly what I feared you would say. It's all about my just getting up and doing things I don't have the power or, or know how to do. My problem is not simply going to work in a field for heaven's sakes. I wish it was that easy. My problem is th this compulsion to drink or, or do drugs or be sexually impure or you fill in the blank. If I could change, don't you think I would just get up and do it? I can hear people say. Well, I hear that. I'm sure some who respond this way are using excuses to stay where you are. Some are thinking that way, really. But I'm also just as sure that there are some, maybe most, who truly want to change but feel overwhelmed when trying to make any moral effort. They then, after trying to make moral effort, just give up and become even more passive than they were before they tried because the weight of the attempt to lift the rock off themselves is just too daunting. I offer the following from my own experience. I do not offer five easy steps to anything. I can only tell you what I found to be true with myself. I was totally gripped by my sin. I could not see myself ever living free from its power. Uh, I embraced a gospel message that was being preached. That we're sinners, we'll always be sinners. There's nothing we can do to escape the penalty of sin. Jesus came and took the penalty of sin in my place, which always gave me the impression that God hated me, but he, he did have enough mercy that he would beat Jesus up instead of beating me up, and he would put Jesus through hell so I wouldn't go to hell. And so uh, that's, that's the, the view I had. I was only saved from the penalty of sin, not from the power of sin. I, and I, I don't want to get off on the error of that, 
but obviously, uh, obviously, people who listen to Nightlight know uh, already the, the error of that way of thinking. But books I read and lectures I heard and sermons and even testimonies usually only served to give me momentary hope but always resulted in even worse failure and deep disappointment. And I would go through cycles of self-loathing, self-motivation, self-examination, self-improvement, and soon self-indulgence, which would return to deeper self-loathing. I did become free. I want to tell you how I came to that freedom. I mean, at least draw a sketch of it. I hope with all my heart you will hear it as one needy human being talking to another needy human being, not as a self-help guru lecturing you in any way, shape, or form. But this is basically some of the principles that I learned. The first one is, and and you're going to, you're going to laugh at the simplicity of it. I, I realized I was truly a sinner. My life was unmanageable if left to myself. I was not a pretty good person. I was capable of very dark, evil choices. You might be amazed at how many of us don't quite get that yet. I won't dwell on it. Maybe you just need to think about it. There was a core in me that wanted to find life on my terms. My choices produced such terrible, deep pain that I could no longer bear it. The pain brought me to desperate honesty. It took a long time because I had a lot of religion in my head. Now, if this sounds like the beginning of the 12 steps that some of you might be familiar with from being in a 12-step program, the reason it's familiar is because 12 steps do work, if you haven't noticed, and they work because they simply are true. So whether you're in a 12-step program or just in normal life, Step number one is to recognize that your life is unmanageable. Your sin is not manageable. And a lot of religion, a lot of Christian discipleship is really just sin management. I had to collapse in Jesus' arms and let myself be found. The parable of the lost sheep shows us one thing about Uh, if there's anything it shows us it shows us nothing you can do can fix yourself the only thing the lost sheep could do we've been talking about it's what you do well the only thing I could do at first was to give up doing and let myself be found by the shepherd I'm not talking about conversion in the sense of getting saved. I'd already done that. What if you've already done that and you're still a mess? I I know legalists and Pharisees will simply say, well, you weren't really saved. But I know they're wrong. 
as I said previously, I was not working for my salvation. I was crying out for a salvation that works. And as I've said before, we have so reduced the word salvation. See, there's that label that reduces. We've so reduced salvation to a mere momentary event that we say happened at such and such a date you know, your old songs about, I can take you to the time, I can take you to the place where the Lord saved me by his wonderful grace. And that, there's truth to that. I'm not making fun of that or, or saying that's not true to some degree. But salvation is happening in us until it has been fulfilled at the resurrection. We were saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. I was not working for my salvation. I was crying out for a salvation that works. All my religious experience and church involvement was a mixed bag. I was grateful for the good of it, but I was terribly hindered by the bad of it. The expectations that became legalisms, false claims, general shallowness, of my church life experience up to that time. When I collapsed at Jesus' feet, I simply cried out for him to come and find me. I told him, I have tried and tried. I simply can't do it. You have to come get me and do in me what I just can't do for myself. I'm not making any more promises. I'm not writing you any more bogus checks on an account with nothing in it. I'm crying out for you to come get me. I remember the night like I can see it in my head very clearly. I cried myself to sleep in his arms. I didn't feel anything but shameful sorrow and exhaustion. I had no visions or goosebumps. I had raw, naked, end of my rope, emptiness. It was in some ways, I guess, what you might call pure faith. I had pure faith. I found after this collapse that I had a glimmer of hope returning the next morning. And with it, a small but growing sense of joy. And that joy was strength. For Nehemiah tells us, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I was beginning to experience an exchange. I had given him my impotence, and I was gaining his strength. I had given him my sorrow, and I was receiving his joy. I had given him my will. And that was fulfilling his will. For the very first time in my life, I found a freedom to to say no to sin. Before, I had no sense of freedom to even choose. I just was a slave to my destructive behavior. But my giving up of my will, which was bound, I mean, all I could choose to do with it was give it up to Jesus. That's all I had power over it to do. By 
doing that one thing which I could choose to do, that was the one act of my will which then allowed him to do his will in me. Now, this was slow. Uh, I'm describing both an event, a moment, and the beginning of many moments. But it was the many moments that would never have occurred had I not had that initial moment. And as Oswald Chambers says, it can happen in a, a day, a minute, or a year. God's not really concerned about the number of seconds that go ticking by your clock in this process. He's concerned about how genuine it is. And for me, it was slow, but I was changing now from the inside out instead of trying desperately to change from the outside in. I had to learn to resist accusations coming at me from the devil from the religious system and from my old religious self. I had to learn these things, and that obviously took time. It didn't all happen in one one con, uh, construct, one moment. But that moment opened the door for this whole process. I stopped looking for human hero figures who would help me and made Jesus alone my source again. That was a process, but it, it had a real beginning and continued and continues to this day. Now, for example, to illustrate what I'm saying, my former addictive personality to people made me look for ways to not be alone. But after this collapse and allowing myself to be found, I began to look forward to being alone with Jesus. I learned to be with people in healthy doses. But in the middle of being with them, I would feel, sense this calling away. Come away with me, my beloved. Come away with me. My real life was with him alone. That was a process. But I knew when it began that it was a core change in me that would not fade, but only increase, and it has ever since. I found scriptures that seemed to speak to me personally and allowed those scriptures to become Jesus' word to me, for me, about me. I wallowed in the self-centered joy of that, of those scriptures as being mine. I didn't allow other interpretations to get in the way. I, I knew I had to keep out any voice, no matter how authoritative or educated, that might make me doubt those verses belonged to me. And I stubbornly refused any other point of view. For instance, I knew, I, I tend to quote, uh, I know I tend to quote it probably far too often, but Philippians 1.6 has become the anchor of my life. He who has begun a good work in me will finish it. I didn't care what any commentator said, any professor of New Testament. I knew what that verse said to me, and I clung to that. I just took it in in childlike trust. that That's what Jesus was saying to me. He was saying, son, I started this work in you and just as surely as my grace began it, the same grace will bring it to completion and you will be all I created you to be. That is your destiny. 
And I have rested in that truth ever since with momentary struggles. So here's what I'm trying to get across to you finally. God is sovereign. That is comforting to know because it means we can rest assured that he is not disappointed in us. He's not wringing his hands wondering how this is going to turn out. He's not surprised by any event. He's not discouraged by our failure or even angered by our lapses. Though he may get angry at us in certain circumstances. But it's not an anger of disappointment or frustration, but of correction. He's working in us all the time so that we might become able to will freely his will. The only thing I am to do in order to do his will is believe in him to do it in me first. That's all. Trust him to do in me what I cannot do. Now you may think, ah, that's so simplistic. Then if it's so simplistic, are you doing it? John 3, 29 This is the work of God that you believe on the one he has sent. Sometimes you'll run across commentators uh, who will make an issue uh, over is there a difference between believing in Jesus or believing on Jesus. And uh, technically in Greek it makes no difference. But I will say there, there might be, I mean the Holy Spirit might be trying to get across to us that believing in Jesus as an object of fact is not the same thing as letting the weight of your life land on him. So it might be that believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In various other places it uses that preposition. Uh, let the full weight of your life rest on him. Let yourself be found. It's just another way of saying it. John 15, verse 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must Fully let its weight rest in the vine. So you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. I love this next phrase because I've proven it to be true over and over. For without me, you can do nothing. What a comforting, wonderful Beautiful invitation to come, jump in his arms, and let the full weight of yourself rest on him because you believe in him. All this process, whether we come into it early and simply, or like me, after years of religious suffering and conflict, It all leads to the same purpose that God has in all of it. That is to free our will 
to then freely choose his will, which is goodness and love. If we try to do right in our own will and effort, we will fall and be religious prigs. If we struggle with sin and evil in our own will, we fail, then we give up, then we don't become religious prigs, we just become what some people call backsliders. We just give up on it all. In either case, what God's after is our coming to understand that our wills are not our own. They're bound by religious spirits or demonic spirits. When we collapse under the weight of either and then turn like a lost sheep to the shepherd and choose him simply by allowing him to find us, he will. Then we can give ourselves into his care and trust him to do in us and through us what we cannot do on our own. From this helpless union with him, he begins to grow us up. Now, as we close, I, I want to I wanna try to bring this whole subject to a close. I don't want to try to jump into this further in the next session. I think, uh, as I said, there's a danger of making this study uh, way too complicated and you just get really complicated and you start thinking now is this my true self or is this my false self or is this my will or is this my emotions or is this you know and then you just you just drown in all those questions what 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 is it what is it you don't believe god will do for you why don't you start there and just say, you know, I've been wrestling with this for a long time, whatever this is. And I have actually gotten so tired of wrestling with it that I've just stopped looking at it and become, you know, just, I just assume that that's just the way it is. Well, I believe that you saved me from the penalty of sin. Why can't I believe that you also saved me from the power of sin? And not at the resurrection, but now, now, in this moment, starting right now, I, I, I can't, I can't fight this anymore. I can't, I struggle, some of you struggling with your weight, or struggling with depression, or struggling with unforgiveness, or struggling with immoral uh, sexual urges. Or I mean, the, 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 we all know the list, for him's sake. We all know the list. Um, yours may be quite unique. It's not on anybody's list it's except, except yours. You've managed to form a bondage that nobody else really knows about but, but you and, and God. Whatever that is, it's, think of the cross. Look at the cross. Meditate on, on the cross. That is God Almighty hanging on that cross. Taking into himself in some form we don't understand how, but we know he did. He took it into himself, all the sins and sin of the world, the universe.
The word world there doesn't mean earth. It means the whole universe. He took it into himself and then rose from the dead with the power to not only deliver you from the penalty of sin, but from its power. Now from this helpless union with him, beginning in this helpless union, you may have spent a whole life of shallow legalistic outward conformity with a whole bunch of unforgiveness and bitterness and lust and greed and hatred and stuff inside of you. But you may, have, you may be coming to the place where you can't bear it anymore. That's grace. When you get to where you can't stand it anymore. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Then grace my fears relieved. Grace taught me to hate my sin. Then grace relieved me of its burden and power. From this helpless union with him, that's when we begin to grow up. Some people don't start growing up until they're long been 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 adults for a long time. I tell people I was born and raised in Mississippi, but I grew up in Texas. I began to grow up as the Lord began to bring all these things to the light. One day we will be like him. Full-grown, mature sons and daughters. That is not a goal we reach for. That is a predestined destiny. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 guarantees it. Philippians 1 verse 6 guarantees it. Many, many, many other verses. But until then, we trust the same grace that came after us in the beginning to carry us through to the end. He who has begun a good work in us will complete it. Father, I pray for every man and woman in the sound of my voice. I pray, Father, for a release of the power of grace to shatter strongholds, break bondages, loose the heavy burden of false religious responsibility, and release your children to come into the freedom of the sons and daughters of God in areas where they have for years, to the point of giving up, uh, been tied down and hindered. I pray, Father, that they will, from starting today, starting at this moment, begin to believe that the same Jesus who delivered them from the penalty of sin is also their Savior from the power of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.